This Impacts for Good podcast series with 702 is brought to you by Vets for Good. We first went together, I mean, my husband is a Faisal Randero, also a doctor. And so we first went together to Zimbabwe after independence and worked there. And I mean, I just completely fell in love with the region and the country then in Zimbabwe. We went back for a brief time to the UK, but Faisal was also involved in liberation movements. I was involved in anti-apartheid and everything was beginning to sort of really catch fire here. This is Vitz Impacts for Good, and I'm Eusebius McKaiser. In this episode, we introduce you to Wits University's Dr. Helen Rees. We take a look at the intersection between politics, society and medicine. Having relocated to our continent with her South African-born activist husband, she found herself at the front line of women's health and the HIV-AIDS pandemic in the early 1990s. Her politically conscious upbringing and working-class socialist background in the UK drove her to see the struggles of Southern African women not only from a medical viewpoint, but also a socio-economic stance. So we've got 14 hospitals and we've got eight uh, faculties of health sciences, but we might get additional hospitals. Um, There are others who are interested. So it's an enormous enterprise. In this podcast series, we shine the light on WITS originators who are leading the charge in tackling global challenges. The current health emergency we find ourselves in is being monitored by an outstanding group of academics, scientists and researchers on the hunt for a vaccine, cure or effective treatment for COVID-19. The phenomenal woman leading the South African wing of the WHO's solidarity trial is Wits University's Dr. Helen Rees, a pioneer of women's reproductive health, HIV AIDS treatment and infectious disease management across the globe. My fellow South Africans, since we declared the coronavirus pandemic a national disaster and announced a package of extraordinary measures to combat this grave public health emergency, the response of South African people to this crisis has been remarkable. Millions of our people have understood the gravity of the situation we are in. Most South Africans have accepted the restrictions that have been placed on their freedoms and their lives and have taken responsibility for changing their behaviour. I want to start firstly with understanding what drew you uh, to this particular field. I mean, you grew up obviously uh, in England and there are many choices you could have made as a youngster. You could have decided to study liberal arts. I know you eventually did that at Cambridge. But first and foremost, it was medicine that you had applied for. What was it about your early upbringing that perhaps gave us an insight into your deep interest in the body? <laughs> it's a very good question. One worth thinking about. I, I, so I came from, I, my, I, my family were very Welsh, actually. And uh, so uh, it came from a long line of um, coal miners and trade unionists on the one side and Methodist ministers on the other. So I was brought up in a household that had a very strong moral compass about right and wrong, about you know how one should behave in the world. But also I had a mother who was a frustrated doctor. I mean, she'd been brought up in the war and wasn't able to go to university and things like that. So I think that sort of came out to, to myself and I have one sister. Both of us became doctors. And I think it was that sort of drive of um, doing good for communities that that is the right thing to do, to combine with 
um, a sort of passion that probably leaked into me from my mother. Going to Oxbridge, that's not a natural destination for someone who is not terribly posh. Did you fit in or were the class cleavages there in part what has been the basis of your Marxist approach towards medicine later on in your career? For a South African audience in particular, explain how anomalous it is unless you come from the English equivalent or the Welsh equivalent of a private school to end up uh, at Cambridge. It was in those days. It was it was very anomalous, um, and it still is to some extent. It hasn't been totally corrected, but it was very anomalous. I, I went to there were three women's colleges then, and the ratio of women to men was one to ten men. And uh, the, in, I went to one of the women's colleges, and there there were four of us in the whole year that had come through the state school sector, um, and definitely the, the 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 English class system. Um, is is a very very powerful um, subterranean message to people who are not at the top of that system, um, and so sort of coming to terms with that. When I look back, I think it did impact on me. I think that it, you you did feel always a bit of an underdog, and always that feeling that um, you, you you didn't really deserve to be there. It was a mistake. I mean, to this day, I think it probably was a mistake. <laughs> but um, I, I I think that that feeling, um, you know, and and then and you carry that with you. I, I, um, and I've spoken subsequently to the women, you know, when after years after leaving, and mm. many of the women in the same situation said they felt exactly the same way, that, that, that they really didn't deserve to be in the, the Cambridge environment. The academy is carved up for all sorts of efficient purposes into departments and faculties, but we don't live our lives like that. How critical is it to your politics as a doctor to have had the privilege not only to study medicine, but also to have been able to dip into the humanities and get to situate medicine within a wider socio-political context? Uh, incredibly important. Uh, I mean, as, as you mentioned, I did a, as well at Cambridge a master's in social and political sciences. And there I did uh, my thesis was actually really about women's health. And that was right back in the in the 70s when, you know, the women's movement was was really moving. We also had, you know, what, what we, we called in those days Reds in Medicine. We had an alternative structure that really talked about the social issues around medicine. And um, I did my electives with um, a GP who was one of the, the, the best-known socialist general practitioners probably the, the UK's ever produced. So, so it, it, that sort of that feeling that medicine has to be aligned with, with not only with care of individual patients, but of um, equity, of human rights, of dignity, um, I, I think was with me throughout that educational process and then into my subsequent career. You came to South Africa, well, Southern Africa first and foremost, and that must have been really interesting also from a biography point of view because you were by then madly in love, as was your future husband with you in an interracial relationship, but you know that you were coming to the belly of the beast, that your relationship, in fact, was deemed immoral by the apartheid architects. So what was it like for you to come to the continent, suddenly coming with privilege from the global north, 
even though you have experience of what it is to be an underdog in terms of the class dimensions of, of the country you were leaving behind. We first went together, I mean, my husband is uh, Faisal Randira, also a doctor. And so we first went together to Zimbabwe after independence and worked there. And I mean, I just completely fell in love with the region and uh, the country then in Zimbabwe. Um, we went back for a brief time to the UK, but Faisal was also involved in liberation movements. I was involved in anti-apartheid and everything was beginning to sort of really catch fire here. And... Um, so we decided and discussed with many people and decided to, to, to come back in. And um, I mean, you talk about biographies. I think I probably got the least romantic reason ever for getting <laughs> married. And that was because I thought, if I'm going to get arrested, probably better to be married and arrested than not married and arrested, particularly because we have a child. So, <laughs> so that, was why we, that was why I got married. But um, it was, so, so I'd, we'd, we'd, we'd sort of, been to visit. Um, when we were in Zimbabwe, I'd come down and so I'd visited the country and many, many, many funny stories about those first visits because we were, as you say, completely illegal. And then we came to stay and, and the Immorality Act was still in place and we had nowhere to stay. We ended up living in a, in a garage um, because we couldn't find anywhere to stay. Um, and we got, you know, basically got, we got I got a house taken away from me by the group areas police. We had the Immorality Act and we were doing political work as well. So, so it was a very interesting period. But we also came into a time when um, uh, the, you, you know, there were many, many, many comrades. Mm. So we joined NAMDA, the National Medical and Dental Association, and worked very closely with them. And so we were working in, a, in a, the context of a liberation movement which made you feel that you had an incredibly useful role that you could contribute. And that, when I look back, I mean, I, I just don't think that I was as um, intimidated as it might sound like I, I should have been because of the context in which we were operating. What is so fascinating is how many doctors on both sides of the apartheid war were engaged in either being an extension of the immoral apartheid regime or being part of the liberation movement, Dr. Rees. And yet there are also many people who thought a career in medicine is an opportunity to opt into an apolitical life because they didn't want to get their hands dirty. How did you think about yourself as a doctor in the context of political struggle? No, I, I definitely saw that my role as a doctor was, first of all, to oppose apartheid and, and in parallel to that, to work with the people who most needed it. And at that stage, I had no academic aspirations whatsoever. I was going to work. I was working in Alexandra Township and uh, I, was, that's, I, I was going to work there. I was going to work within the structures that were, were opposing apartheid. And that was absolutely, there was no question that there was any other course as a doctor other than to, to be on the side of good and of right. Given that the laws were fundamentally unjust, were you prepared to break law for the sake of justice as a doctor? I think, for example, in relation to not only anti-black racism, but also deep misogyny when it comes to reproductive health and the rights of women. Women weren't allowed to access legally an abortion at that particular time. How did you navigate that 
when your moral views about medicine in relation to gender equity might have been incompatible with the laws of the day? I do think that, as I say this, when, when on reflection, this moral compass about what's right and wrong um, takes you, makes you do things that are unquestioning um, at the time. I mean, you react. I mean, I do remember being very pregnant with my second uh, son and uh, at Alex Clinic when Alex was being besieged by troops. And the clinic was surrounded and I was the only doctor there and we were hiding young people in the clinic and I was extremely pregnant and I remember standing in the doorway with my <laughs> big pregnant belly and saying you to, I don't know, to the to the to the captain or the colonel and saying you will not enter this clinic and get, and getting sort of marched away to the Casper and trying to sort of ban them from doing it so on the one hand there was no question that as a doctor you followed that moral code and in terms of gender um, once we were able to really start planning what the, what a new health service and a, a, a whole new health system would look like. The issue of women's health, reproductive health was extremely high on my agenda. And we worked hard because, as, as you said, um, for things like termination of pregnancy, it was available, albeit illegally, to white women. But it was not through the private sector, but it was not available unless illegal and illegally and done unsafely. Mm-hmm. For black women. And so in terms of equity, in terms of women's rights, um, that was, we, we did, some of the earliest studies we did were to demonstrate the amount of mortality and morbidity that was being caused because of the legislative framework. Um, and, and I think that's one approach that I realized really is very important. If you want to persuade people of the impact of unjust laws, then you have to produce the evidence yeah. that allows people who might be doubting to say, okay, I, I get it. I might not be comfortable with it, but I get it and I understand it. While you are busy doing that kind of data in the hope that you can appeal rationally to those who don't get it but might be responsive to evidence, did you in the meantime have to deal with the difficult professional choice of allowing poor women and black women to access an abortion? You know, it's, it's interesting that you ask that because it, it, I think because it was illegal, if I look back to those days, I can't remember actually getting a request in the public sector. Oh, well, it, we were in the public sector, but not in the government sector because Alex Clinic in those days was, um, was funded with, um, with donor money. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I don't recall ever getting that request. I do remember other indignities such as uh, the women in those days in the, the obstetric unit that we had were delivering on concrete blocks on newspaper. And if we wanted, you know, and many occasions when we had someone who needed admission to hospital, I mean, you know, driving past the Johannesburg Hospital to go all the way to Barra, um, you know, and, and trying to insist that, you know, this baby was going to die unless they let, let us in the door of the Johannesburg Hospital um, and, ju- and jumping up and down and, 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 and trying to sort of twist arms. But I do remember those indignities and I do remember very, very clearly the impact of, uh, you know, access to, to good obstetric care, to good pediatric care, what, what it meant for the populations. And, and we, we tend to forget that. We have come a long way from that, but that was the reality then. Dr. Rees, let's fast forward to 2020. In 1996, we chose a constitutional framework that was normative. It was a vision for a better society that we were meant to have. Section 27 of the Bill of Rights in particular made 
the progressive realization of health rights justiciable against the state. It's an opportunity to have a never-again approach, as Madiba had put it. Never again will we experience the indignities of the past. With the benefit of hindsight, looking back to that normative framework in 1996 and the time that has lapsed since then, have we set up the systems from a reproductive health point of view in particular, but more broadly in the public health care sector, to be able to undo what it was that you had seen and experienced back then in Alex? I guess that is going to be a sort of combination of yes and no. I think we've set up some extraordinary policies and commitments. I think it's often said, isn't it, that we have some of the best policies and and most respectful policies in terms of human dignity that that you could ask for. The, The problem has been how to translate those into reality. And the the healthcare sector in the country has really struggled um, with all the changes. And we, we made some we made some early mistakes, I think. Uh, we, we thought, for example, by focusing uh, post-94 on primary health care, that uh, the need, for example, for hospital beds, etc., would diminish. And in fact, of course, the more pathology you find because you're doing proper primary health care, the more you're going to need hospitals and support and cancer treatments and all of these things. So I think that we've learned some extremely tough lessons. In terms of where we have got to in terms of service delivery, Mm. the figures are infinitely better than they were. They they got much worse because of HIV and lack of access to antiretrovirals for a whole period of time. But since then, they have got better. Our infant mortality, our child mortality, our maternal mortality are all dropping. But when we think about the amount of money we spend on health, they should be much better than they are. So we have a lot further to go Mm. in terms of service delivery and equity of service delivery than we have done so far. There's a tremendous amount of innovation going on in Africa in general. Maria mentioned uh, South Africa. And again, uh, it is interesting the way in which South Africa is bringing the disease under control and how uh, African countries are actually in many ways, in some ways, showing the way. We are living through a pandemic that probably is going to be the most momentous event of all of our lives. And it's very difficult to get a proper handle on it in all manner of ways, economically, scientifically, experientially, existentially. I want us to reflect on that for the majority of time that we have left. The World Health Organization, Dr. Rees, has praised us as a region and as a country for how we have dealt so far with the pandemic. Is that praise appropriate or is it too soon to be able to assess whether our government has handled the pandemic as best it can? Well, I think uh, in terms of how far we are into the pandemic, it's still unfortunately quite early. So eventually history will reflect on the way that many countries has responded and will say, what was really the right thing to do? Was that right? Was this right? There'll be a whole analysis that will go on, both from an epidemiological public health, but also a social perspective. Um, so, but, but having said that, um, I think that the, the, the leadership from the health minister and from the president um, has been uh, extremely important and e- extremely good. I, I do think, and I do a lot of work with WHO on many of their COVID committees as well, our health minister has been um, exemplary in, in, in 
um, and relentless in saying what needs to be done from his point of view, but also listening to what others, listening to advice of others, which is terribly important. He is a doctor, but he recognizes that uh, he needs the advice of many different categories of specialists. We have actually been very impressed with the level of confidence of our own clinicians, our nurses. They've been raising issues with us, the things that we need to tighten up. It becomes very clear to us that the issues of proper training of staff is going to be important, the issue of protective clothing and making sure that everybody understands. So, so I do think that so far the leadership has been very good. There are obviously questions about the, the, the total lockdown and the inevitable balance between um, how much good are we doing in terms of flattening the curve? Yes, we've done good. But what will happen when, we, when the lid comes off a bit? Are we going to have an extraordinary surge of cases? Um, but also what's the balance between that mm. and people's social well-being and, and things like food security and just the hunger that we see on the streets now? We are enormously proud of having excellent researchers like yourself involved in an international clinical trial launched by the World Health Organization. Talk us through the fundamentals as simply as possible. The Solidarity Project, what is it? So, I, as I say, I've been working with WHO um, for some time on the, what they call their research and development blueprint. Um, and this was really looking at diseases that were going to be this kind of threat and what do we do to respond to that. So when this, when COVID-19 really emerged and before we saw uh, the, the full enormity of what was going to happen, there were serious discussions about what needed to be done. And the first thing from the lessons in China was that we needed treatment. Uh, we needed effective treatments. And the studies, some studies had been done in China, but they were small and inconclusive. So the idea was to get a global study that would look at treatment of hospital patients to see if we can either shorten the disease, stop it progressing to, to requiring ICU and stop deaths. But there are also other studies that WHO is coordinating that, that we're also looking at. One is around having a major footprint around the world for vaccine trials. And the other is to look at uh, studies of drugs that will stop infection or stop mild disease progressing to more advanced disease. And all of those studies will be coming into to South Africa, obviously with proper regulatory oversight, but all of them will be coming here. What are some of those drugs in the study? And why is there an intuitive interest in those ones in particular? The drugs in the study are, are um, hydroxychloroquine, which is an anti-malarial drug, uh, lopinavir ritonavir, which many people will have heard of because it's used in the treatment of HIV, but it's an antiviral. Uh, adding to that interferon, which is um, a, a drug that's used for the treatment of um, some autoimmune diseases um, and some cancers. And then remdesivir that people will have heard about, which is uh, the, a new antiviral. It was developed for the treatment of Ebola originally. Um, it's given by infusion, so it can only be used in hospitals in its current form. But it's, it looks like from recent studies that it's quite promising in, in uh, stopping the duration of disease and the duration of stay in hospitals. I've heard colleagues of yours describing you as quite magisterial as a coordinator, both in how you conduct meetings when you chair them, but also as an overseer of projects. How many hospitals locally will be involved here? And 
just at an administrative level, quite apart from the science, what is involved in this kind of study in the South African context? So we've got 14 hospitals and we've got eight uh, faculties of health sciences, but we might get additional hospitals. Um, There are others who are interested. Um, So it's an enormous enterprise because each site that you have has to have a lead investigator and then co-investigators. They have to have permission, obviously, from their own institutions, but we have to have a number of ethics committees around the country to give approval, including a national oversight ethics committee, but also the Drug Regulatory Authority, SAPRA, also has to give approval. Um, And then you have to negotiate for the drugs to come in, for the tablets to be purchased, for the staff to be employed. So it's, it's an enormous project, and we're going... Um, at the fastest rate we can. I mean, this is something that we've been pushing for for about six weeks, and we hope to be in the field in another two weeks, subject to getting those final approvals. Besides your academic and research excellence, which are good enough reasons to be part of this global study, what is it about South Africa as a site that make us particularly attractive for this kind of work to be done here? For example, is the experiences that we've had with TB and with HIV, which are ongoing challenges for us in many of our communities, do they at all make us particularly desirable as a place where comparative research can be done? I mean, you, you, you've hit the nail on the head. I mean, um, since 1994, and sadly because of HIV and TB, uh, we've developed cadres of extraordinarily extraordinary clinical researchers and lab researchers, um, partly because of that. But also, even in our hospitals, there are many really excellent researchers who are recognized internationally for non-communicable diseases and other communicable diseases as well. So we are known as a country that is able to deliver really first-class research in the health sphere from lab to clinical and beyond. Um, And We also have the experience of doing very large studies. This will be the kind of thing that will be required, say, for a COVID vaccine trial. So we have the experience from HIV of doing very large studies, both for vaccines but for other drugs, with thousands of people being enrolled. Um, And we have a track record of doing these studies very successfully. So um, the other thing, of course, is that we're in the African region. So we are a country which is able to... Um, undertake research with communities who might otherwise be left out of research. Um, And we we need to have African countries and African colleagues involved in the whole research process. On a personal level, how do you deal, (laughs) Dr. Rees, with time pressure? The clock is ticking and infections are increasing exponentially in some communities. Death rates are high in many countries like Sweden, Do you resort back to your British mantra of getting on with it? Or is there particular a kind of pressure with this sort of research question that differs from research you might do that is also important but doesn't have the same kind of time pressure? Well, I think that globally there's been a real roll up your steves and accelerate. I mean, I've never, I don't think anyone has ever seen in all the spheres of clinical research that we've just talked about, there's the sort of commitment, funding, speed, global um, alliances. It's, it's been totally extraordinary. I mean, it's allowed us to move vaccines. When I first discussed them in one of the global committees in January into phase one trials since January. 
I mean, and then one of those vaccines will be coming to South Africa with all the approvals granted, hopefully in May. Now, now that's just never, it's unprecedented and the world has really responded to the pandemic um, in that way. At an individual level, I think that um, I've just been on the phone to an international colleague and you know, he and I have known each other for years. We both work very hard, but both of us said we have never worked so hard. I mean, around the globe have put everything else on hold in terms of the professional lives and are saying this is now an absolute focus. And it's not just a focus for an ordinary working day. This is a 24-hour focus with weekends to actually make sure that things are, are done and are done really rapidly. Final question. A lot of your colleagues locally are from across the academy at different universities and academic hospitals and hospitals across the country. There are a large number of your colleagues working on some of these local and global health questions who specifically are colleagues of yours affiliated to Wits University. What is it about the institution that seems to have such a disproportionate number of research excellence that comes out of it? It's obviously one of our leading universities in the country and in the African region. So it's likely to attract senior people. It also has that, I think it it does have a, a sort of liberal reputation. So I think a lot of progressive doctors, clinicians, researchers have been attracted to WITS because of that historic background that still prevails. So I think that those are two things, but I also think that Vitz had a sort of groundswell and the clinical side for HIV and TB research, which has, and a lot of that has been redirected now towards COVID. So that might well be part of it as well. But it also has, as I say, a reputation of, uh, I think of activism and many of the, the people who are, are now putting their hands up also have a, if you go back in their past, many of them will have a past of activism towards community. Dr. Rees, thank you for your research. Excellent. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. This Impacts for Good podcast series with 702 was brought to you by Vets for Good.